Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is Helene Wecker. Helene, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Anthony. You're very welcome. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Well, um, I am a novelist for the most part. Uh, for the, the vast majority of, of my writing work has uh, been novels, uh, <laughs> of which I have written two at this point. Uh, the Golem and the Genie was my first one. It came out in 2013. Um, and its continuation, um, which is called The Hidden Palace, comes out June 8th in the U.S. Uh, not certain yet about the U.K. release date. We're still working on that. Uh, but uh, up- updates as as forthcoming. Um, so the books that I – so those two books are a combination of historical fiction and fantasy. Um, and what gets called literary fiction, but I try to like to hand wave that as an unnecessary distinction, um, they get shelved just about everywhere. Uh, so they're, they sort of exist at a weird crossroads of, of interests and, and genres. Um, so the first book takes place at the end of the 19th century and follows uh, two main characters, um, a, a golem, a, a female golem named Chava, and a male genie named Ahmad. And they both arrive by accident separately in Manhattan as undocumented immigrants, um, essentially. And they have to learn how to pass as human and fit in with uh, the rest of the immigrants around them. And of course, as part of that, they, they meet each other and have adventures. And uh, the the Hidden Palace, which is the new one, is the continuation of their story. Um, and it takes place on a sort of a longer timeline than the first book. The first book plays out over the course of a year, give or take. Uh, the second one takes place over the first 15 years of the 20th century. Um, so a, a, a pretty momentous time um, worth a a lot of things happening in New York and in, in the, the larger world, the, the run-up to World War One. Well, actually, the first like couple of years of World War One for um, especially in Europe, but while well, the U.S. was sort of hanging out still on the sidelines, uh, maintaining neutrality. Um, and so during the book, um, events in my two main characters' lives and in, in you know the world around them sort of conspire to change how they perceive each other as well as confront some uh, unwelcome truths about themselves. And that's uh, sort of what kicks off the, the, the second book. Wow. I had no idea that it uh, – because I haven't read it yet. I re- read the first one, loved it. I haven't read the second one yet, uh, although I think you owe me a reader's copy. Uh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know that uh, – that it took place over such a long span of time compared to the first one. That's that's news to me. Yeah, the, so it, it's sort of funny because the first half of the book takes place over about 13 years. And the second half of the book jumps forward a small amount, relatively small amount of time, like a, a year and a half or so. And that part of the, the the entire second half of the book, I think, takes place over about a week, week and a half. So it's a very... Um, different, it, it, like the time slows down and then it speeds up real fast. It gets like, there's a lot that happens toward the end of the book. There's like a lot that takes place on one day in particular. So it's this very, um, the, the pacing is, it was much different than anything I've, I've tried to do before. 
Hmm. Wow. So let's let's go back to the start then. So when did you first decide that you wanted to write stories and become a writer? Um, well, it, it's I know it's the cliche at this point, but I uh, I was pretty much always a writer in some fashion. I started when I was I want to say like seven or eight, and I would sit at the kitchen table with paper and pen and write these um, short stories that were extremely derivative of whatever it was I was watching on TV or reading at the time. Um, I took some uh, creative writing classes in uh, when I was an undergrad. I'd always been a bookworm. I always had my nose buried in a book, um, even like walking in hallways between classes at school, I would be reading usually a Star Trek novel or then later a, a Doctor Who novel. Um, and then, so when I went, I went to undergrad for, um, uh, for English with a minor in women's studies. And when I graduated, I, I knew pretty much before I graduated that I was, I was going to get a job. I was going to get a real job. I was going to get a, a real job like real people did in real life. Um, I, and the thought of graduating college and deciding, okay, I'm going to try writing for a living now just never occurred to me. It wasn't something that I wanted to do um, because that, that just didn't feel like the path of adulthood, of, of, you know, learning how to have an apartment and pay for your bills and, and afford groceries and things. So instead, I uh, got a job in marketing and communications, as one does, um, with a software company in Minneapolis. And I did that for a little while. And I really didn't like it. And I then moved to Seattle with my then boyfriend, now husband, and I did marketing and communications at a very, very nice public TV station in Seattle. And I really didn't like it. And I, at one point, looked at my job and I looked at my boss's job and I didn't like her job either. And I didn't like the jobs of anyone in the marketing department. And I didn't like the career path that I was on. It was just the slow realization of, oh, oh, no, this is not going to work, is it? Um, so at that point, I realized I need to figure out how to be a writer. I need to at least give it a try. I need to do this thing that I've always told myself I couldn't do because if I was meant to do it, I would have done it by now. Um, and I'm going to just see what is there. Um, so I started to take some writing classes, some some like night creative writing classes at uh, University of Washington. And around this time, the radio station was going through some tough financial times and did a radio station, TV station, um, and did the uh, did me the massive favor of laying me off. Um, and I decided, okay, well, this is my chance. It felt like sort of like graduation. It was like, okay, if you're going to do this, um, then now is your chance to really do it. I was in my mid twenties. I had no kids, no house, no, you know, nothing, not a mortgage, not anything. I was, I was as unencumbered as I was ever going to be. And I knew it. So I decided at that point, I need to um, see about getting 
uh, a master's degree in creative writing. Um, and I'd had enough like success in the, the, the short story classes that I was taking. Um, I, I'd written enough things that I'd gotten feedback on that was like, okay, well, this isn't so terrible. And no, you've got something here and you should keep going with it. And those sort of comments from my professors that I knew I wasn't, uh, that there was enough there to work with. Um, so, and, and I'm, I'm a student at heart. My favorite thing is being a student and learning. Um, so, and, and I know that I thrive pretty well in the classroom environment, uh, which is why I decided um, at that point to get an MFA, a master's in, in uh, fine arts. So I applied to a whole bunch of different places and I was pretty astonished when Columbia University in New York said, yes, come, come be with us. Um, and, you know, spend an insane amount of money, but, you know, come, <laughs> come to New York and, and, and learn how to be a writer. Um, and so I did, I packed up and moved everything again, um, with the man who was now my fiance and we went to New York and I spent two years in essentially boot camp, um, in, uh, in Manhattan at Columbia. And when I got out of it, um, well, so, okay. So what happens when you go to an MFA program that is structured like Columbia's and like many of them is that, you know, you're going to be there for a certain amount of time taking a certain number of classes. Um, many, the, the, the most important of which are in the, the workshop model, which is where you, you basically cut your heart out and you put it on paper and you put it on a plate and, and you give it to all of the people in your class and, and they tell you, um, what they like about it and what they don't. Um, and you have to do it for them too. Um, so I knew that I was going to be there for a certain amount of time and I knew that I had to have a thesis at the end of it. Um, that was going to be, uh, and it, it's, it's like your creative body of work that you turn in instead of like writing a paper or dissertation. It's your, it's like part of a novel or a selection of short stories that that is your thesis and you give it to your advisor and your committee and they say, yes, you are a writer now and you can leave. Um, <laughs> you are now officially a writer. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Yes. They, they give you a little stamp. Um, so I, and I knew that what I wanted to write about was my family's history and my husband's uh, family history. So I'm Jewish American and uh, you know, grew, grew up in a, a suburb of Chicago. Um, if, if anyone out there is an X-Men uh, fan, I'm basically Kitty Pride, but without phasing through things. Um, and my husband is an Arab American who also grew up in a suburb of Chicago, different suburb. We didn't meet till we were in college. Um, and I, I met him when I was very young, uh, relatively now looking back on it. I met him when I was 18 <laughs> and, uh, from the beginning, it had always struck me how similar our family stories were in around immigration and coming to America, um, and having to deal with um, what that meant being an American immigrant and uh, dealing with sort of being at the edge of a culture and always having something a little different about you. And that was what I wanted to write about. And the short stories were going to be very much in the, you know, domestic realist sort of fashion. Um, and I worked on them, you know, for a couple of years. And the problem that I was running into was that they were completely boring and not very good at all. Um, and I was talking to a friend of mine about it because, it, you know, I was, 
I was good enough and, you know, I'd, I've certainly read enough in my life that I know when I'm not doing a good job. Um, mm. There's that – I think it's Ira Glass has that famous talk about how um, – when you start something, how how frustrating it is when you start to learn a new skill when you know you're not you're not there yet, um, and you're working toward your goal, um, and you see yourself falling short, and that's basically where I was. Um, and I have a friend. I had a friend in the class in my workshop who I one day was sitting talking to on you know outside on the steps of the school, and. I was basically complaining to her about how I, I didn't like my work enough. I didn't like these stories enough, and, and I wasn't excited about them. It was all stuff that I knew already, and I was just sort of putting it down on the page, and, and it, it wasn't you know, it wasn't exciting to me, so it wasn't exciting to the reader either. And she sort of said she, – she just gave me this look, and she said, Helene, I need to ask you a question. Why are you writing like this? And I said, what do you mean? What, why am I writing like this? What is it that I'm writing about? Like, what am I writing like? And, and she said, you're writing, you're writing the MFA story. You're writing the, the, the Carver short story. You're, you're doing all of this very realistic stuff. When I have been to your apartment, I have seen your shelves. I know what you like to read. I know that you are a total nerd and you love science fiction and fantasy. And you're always talking in class about, um, genre busting and, and the use of the fantastical and that, is where your heart is. And so why aren't you doing that? And it was like one of those conversations where your head just spins around. Um, and within, I'd say, <laughs> she, so she, she gave me this, um, she gave me a challenge and she said, the next thing I see from you in workshop, I want it to be fantastical. Um, you can be about your family, but you need to take a break from this stuff and you, you need to write something in that's, that's the fantastic. And I was like, okay. And I went home and I sat and I thought about it. And I'd say a couple hours later, I had the first dozen or so pages of what the golem and the genie would turn out to be years later. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it had, it really just broke the whole thing open for me. Um, that it, I couldn't, the reason this stuff was coming out so boring was because I wasn't discovering it and it was too close to, real and I needed something, just a layer in between myself and the story that would allow me to get curious and um and and invent things and move on from and and then get interested in the thing that I had invented, but also at the same time tell these stories of immigration and assimilation and culture. Um and so I just took these two main characters that were like the this you know Jewish American girl and this Arab American boy, and I turned them into um, uh, a golem, which is the the you know sort of the central mythical figure, the most well known mythical uh, figure in, in in Jewish folklore, and a genie, which is uh, the same for um, for Arab and Muslim culture, um, and just took a look at them and said, okay, here you two are, where are you? This, this now didn't feel like, um, you know, 
the modern times anymore. I, I it felt a little more folktale, a little more in the past. So I put them at the end of the 19th century, and I was like, okay, if these two are going to meet at any given time, it's going to be um, in, in any given place. It's going to be in New York. It's going to be in Manhattan at sort of the heyday of of immigration uh, through Ellis Island. And so I decided that they would meet in Manhattan. Um, sort of on the cusp of the 20th century. And at that point, the sto- the characters had suggested themselves. It was like I was I was putting a riddle together or a mad lib or something and 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 my, you know, my brain and 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 what my friend had done had sort of tossed these um these ideas at me and now I had to figure out what to do with them and how to run with them and that uh took up the next 7 years as <laughs> as I um had to then figure out what it was that I had put before myself, what the scope of it was, how much research I needed to do, the answer being an insane amount of research, um, and then and figure out who the characters were, what the story – then how, how are – who these characters – now, at some point, they just – they took over their own lives, and I had to – um, allow for that and honor that and say, okay, I've gotten to know you well enough that I can't just have you do what it is that I want you to do at this point. Um, you, I, I think most or I don't know, maybe all writers get to a point where it's like the thing that you have planned for your character that you've been writing toward um, for you know months or, or years even, um, you get to that point and the character has changed enough in the writing of the tale that they are not going to do that thing. They look at you and say, what, you want me to what? No, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do something else now. And then you just sit there like, well, my whole plan is blown now. <laughs> um, so I have to figure out how to either go back to the drawing board um, or let you do the thing that you're going to do and uh, and see where you go from there. And so I, I feel like that process um, took taught me how to be a, a writer um, to a great extent. Um, more so than the MFA program in many ways. Um, and that was how the Golem and the Genie came about, really. Yeah. I, I actually, funnily enough, had that exact conversation about characters not doing what you want them to uh, on this show with Greg Rucker. Uh, oh. be- because <laughs> he and I come at it from very, very different uh, angles. Like we both uh-huh. have, we've both had that experience, of course, as you say, every writer's had that experience. But how you interpret it and what you think are the reasons for it can be very different. And I, I definitely come at it, it sounds similar to you, from an angle of as you write the character, you get to you make decisions about them and those decisions inform your knowledge of how this character behaves more so than when you first planned whatever you wanted them to do and so as you say you occasionally reach points where you think oh actually now that i know this character better and i've made these other decisions uh it doesn't feel natural that this character would do this anymore uh but you can of course interpret it as the character yes sort of digging their heels in and being obstinate when all you want them to do is the plot yeah and it really, I think, depends on what it was that you were aiming to do with that character in the first place. Um, there were times, especially in the earlier uh, part of writing the first book, when I realized that I had given the character too much reign to change, and a, a, any particular character. And so uh, once they changed 
to the point where they had no interest in being in the story that I wanted to tell anymore. That was when I had to go back and break the character back down and start again from the beginning. Because at that point there, it's like, okay, what's this person doing in the book at all? And I, you know, I, I brought you here to, you know, tell a particular story. You are an actor with a certain amount of latitude, but at a certain point you're in my story and I need you to be who I need you to be. Um, So I think part of that process for me is casting a a wide enough scope um, that the characters are allowed to be full people and not just chess players and asking big enough questions um, that the character can answer in any sort of number of ways. Because, I mean, the, the questions that I'm interested in are how how do you be a good person in the world? How do you adjust to life in a place that doesn't, that isn't built to accommodate you? Um, and what parts of yourself can you keep as hidden and not feel like you are betraying yourself are there parts of yourself that you can keep as hidden and not feel like like you're betraying yourself or do you have to live who you are fully at all times in order to be an authentic person um and those are big questions so any number of characters can answer that in any number of ways Hmm. um so you know and they they answer it the, the the my two main characters answer them in completely different ways at times. And that was how I built them as I'd set them up that they are coming at it from completely different angles. Hava is much more of a, you know, she was built to, uh, built to serve humans, basically built to serve a master, although she doesn't have a master anymore, but she still has that drive to be of use, to be of service. And um, she, because of that, she is much has more of an internal incentive to assimilate and to um act human and to try her best to fit in um as opposed to Ahmad who um was stolen away from the desert um and had to uh and and ended up in New York completely by accident and has n- pretty much no interest really in becoming human. He sees humans as lesser and um, wants to, you know, he, he, he needs at this point to fit in, in uh, enough to pass and to, you know, get by in the world while he gets his feet under him. But he has, but he's incredibly resentful about it. Um, and so when they, the two of them meet, they have, these discussions of with they they just where they you know they come at it from opposite perspectives and so they uh they argue quite forcefully quite early on um on how best to live their lives and whether uh they should even try to assimilate or how they should you know go about doing it um and they have very different ideas about that but at the same time they are the only other people in New York who understands what the other one is going through. Mm. Um, so in that sense, they are fighting the same battle, but they have a completely different baggage about it. Well, and they're also kind of, I mean, they are going on the same journey, mm-hmm. but kind of on op- opposite sides of the Mobius strip, as it were. Uh, yes. In the, 
she essentially is humble and learns pride and he's prideful and learns humility. And that's obviously, that's insanely reductive of a, a 500 page book. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, no, know, but it's, but, but very but that, well it's, said. And... It's as simple as that really. But what's, yeah. I mean, you know, I love Gollum and Ginny and I've said this to you before. I think it's a wonderfully written book. And part of what I like about it is that it is that simple. And yet it is still so compelling because the characters are so well-drawn and because the world that you put them in is so well-drawn. Um, and that, obviously, apart from all the work that you put into the characters, also comes down to the research that you did. And you did mention that you did a lot of research. You mm-hmm. said you fit in well in the kind of, you know, academic student environment, and that helps with your research. Um you must have done, yeah, uh, well, you said you did a huge amount for this. Was it, and obviously, you know, don't take this the wrong way, was it necessary? Did you, looking back on the book, did you do enough, too much? Do you wish you'd done more? Do you think, oh, actually, I didn't need to do all that much? <laughs> um, You know, I feel like I did the right amount for what the book ended up to be. And I think uh, for both of them, that is mm-hmm. the case. Now, did I go down any number of rabbit holes as I did that? Yes. I I get lost very quickly in the research. I'm, I get interested in everything. I want to put everything on the page, and that just isn't possible. Um, but so I do end up over-reading I do think there's a certain amount of over-researching that any writer has to do if there's a research process involved, especially at the beginning, just so you know that you're on solid ground, just so you know that, you know, there's a certain amount of confidence that you have to build up. Um, and you know well, that and you also not- don't know what's a dead end until you go down it and realize it's a dead end. And again, totally. especially at the start of that process. Right. And if you're going to be writing at all a detailed account of someone's day-to-day life back then, it behooves you to know how people live their lives day-to-day. And so much of that is in the details. Um, You know, I I remember at one point writing the first book when I realized I don't know how people told time in the late 19th century did everyone I mean presumably people had clocks in their houses but when you're out on the street what do you do if you have an appointment with someone you know and this is before pocket watches were any you know if you, if you were wealthy you had a pocket watch but what if you were you know a a you know someone living on the lower east side who you know has two nickels to their name what do you do and the answer after considerable research was you go into a pharmacist's and you look at the the clock that they have on the counter um oh. because for every pharmacist for whatever reason had the clock and they they were just you stop in at the corner store and you see what time it is um and so it's little stuff like that that not only gives you give as a writer like enough of a foundation to feel like you know what these people are going to do and how they're going to live your their lives and and stuff that you don't that, so that you don't just sort of elide and hand wave and you know a certain amount of that is necessary but there are certain details where um you, you ground the story in those details and you it, it's like a, a a way to tell the reader not just I've done my research, but these are real people and this is how they lived. Um, and so 
but you never know exactly what detail that is that you're going to need. Um, and so doing the research and, and storing up sort of a cache, just like a, a giant, you know, uh, like a, basically a wiki of, of historical <laughs> detail and in timelines and, and, uh, all of that necessary information, then going in, you know, you're not going to use all of it and you shouldn't use all of it because then it reads like, I have done my research and I'm going to tell you all about mm. it. And I got in trouble with that in early drafts. There was one draft where um, I told my, uh, my, my agent um, who was reading along as I was writing, uh, told me, okay, y- you need to stop. This is, this is reading like a walking tour of lower Manhattan and <laughs> your, your readers are not tourists. Um, it's very nice that you know all of this and you know all the buildings on all of the streets, but we do not need to know them. Um, learn how to pick the telling detail was was his advice and i took that as gospel and went forward um and i always think about that now it's like okay there you are allowed one you know one detail per clause per sentence of of like the uh the world around uh the the character and you know so what is that going to be what is the one that situates them um and either you know and gives a little more information than just factual. Is it is it like the color of a uh, particular building that they notice or that you can make them notice because whatever color it is it sort of resonates with their emotion, their emotional state at the time? Is it, um, you know, the way that uh, the, the autumn leaves in a particular park are falling and you, you're letting the reader know not only that it is a park, there is a park there, but that it, it is autumn and, you know, uh, and that the character is feeling sort of low because the, the, the rattling of the leaves on the ground are, are, you know, sort of tugging at their heart or whatever it is. Um, you know, make make the details do more work than just tell the reader a thing. Um, I mm. think is is ended up being what I learned about how to write a historical book with and incorporate the historical details in a way that weren't just glaringly. Here is a thing that I learned. It's here is the character. In their environment, in their natural world, feeling and acting and doing what all characters do in all of literature. It's just that they're in the past, but it's not the past to them. It's just their world. So having done all this research, um, and this kind of ties back into something you said earlier, where you said that when you were starting your MFA and you were struggling, it was because you were writing real life and you knew it already. Uh, you know, there was nothing else there for you to discover. Um, so how do you approach planning a book? Because I've spoken to some authors on this show and many others, you know, outside, uh, who don't like to outline because it feels like then they're not discovering things when they write the book. But considering you've done all this research and immersed yourself in it and you have these characters, how, and it is a very long book, the first one, especially <laughs> certainly, I'm sure the second one is just as long. Um, it's a little bit longer, even. <laughs> right. So, so how do you go about planning it? Do you outline? Is it very rough, or do you just, having absorbed all this knowledge about the world, do you just kind of dive in and see where it takes you? I do like to outline. Um, I never follow the outline. <laughs> I have to. 
<laughs> I have I have said um, many times that I, I when people ask me how do you write your book, you know how do you, how do you write? There they there's that look in in someone's eye when it's like tell me how. And what I say to them is. I write in the worst possible way. No one should ever write a book the way I write my books. It's incredibly time consuming. Um, it leads to like despair and hair tearing. Um, but what I end up doing is I will do an outline um, and I will always get a certain um, point into the outline when I realize that the story has changed enough from under me or I have researched myself out of thinking that a certain thing could happen or researched myself into thinking that something else that would be better could happen. Um, and at some point, it's like I've swerved off the road because the road did not go where I thought it was going. And now here's this other road and I have to decide if that's really the road that I want to be on or if I need to back up and you know do a three-point turn and go back where I was trying to go. So it's this very... Um, crazy making balance of you know plotting and pantsing as as people like to say are you a plotter or a pantser do you do you plan everything out meticulously or or do you do it by the seat of your pants and i do i tend to do both i will wander into the weeds completely if i don't have any sort of plan um i need to know where it is that i'm going even if it's just a couple scenes ahead a couple you know a chapter ahead i uh, we'll usually have the idea for how uh, I want a book to end um, when I start out, but that ending may change completely. The path to how I get there may change completely, even if the ending itself is basically the same. Um, my books so far tend to get pretty plot heavy toward the end. There's a lot of threads that diverge and sort of spin around and, and then head toward each other in, you know, sort of a climactic finale. Um, and that can be very difficult to pull off and to just maneuver people into place. There's a lot of, um, uh, strategy involved in that uh, toward the end of a book. Um, so I will sometimes um, do a timeline. I, I, there, there's a, a an app that I think Amal El Mokhtar was talking about uh, in a past episode called Eon Timeline um, that yeah, I have used, used as, as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that. I mean, I, I, I was can... one of the beta testers for it. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. And it's. I mean, it is not the world's most friendly piece of software, but oh my god, can you do powerful things with it? Um, and I will, you know, sort of, I've, I've had a, a couple times where I just put everything out on Eon and it's like, okay, here's my character's lives. Here's, you know, in another thread completely, the larger historical things that were going on at the time. You know, I can't, I've, I've got these characters set, um, in the lower, you know, in, in lower Manhattan in the 1910s, I can't just have triangle shirtwaist fire happen and not take it into account. You know, I have to remember when that is and um, account for it in the book and move on from there um, instead of, you know, <laughs> I've accidentally created an alternate universe in New York where that just didn't happen. Um, that, that's something that I'm going to get email about. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, Doing that amount of world building and putting all of that together um, 
there has to be a certain amount of planning at some point. Um, but allowing the story to breathe inside it is um, a difficult balance that I then have to um, account for. I will say every author I know says, oh, no, don't work like me. There's got to be an easier way than the way I do it. (laughs) (laughs) I've never met an author who didn't say that. (laughs) We all think that, like, no, there must be an easier way. I just don't know what it is. (laughs) It's so funny. We are all looking for that magic bullet. We are all, like, I've never stopped looking for the magic bullets. Like, there's an app out there. There is some piece of advice out there that is just going to (laughs) break everything open and it's going to make my life a lot easier. And, of course, it never happens. I will say I can thoroughly relate to what you were saying about um, the strategy as you get towards a climax, when you have multiple threads that need to tie together, because that's mm-hmm. all my books tend to be like that as well. Uh, and I, funnily enough, use Aeon Timeline quite often to help with that. It's not uncommon for me to um, be a bit loosey-goosey in the drafting about when things have happened or are happening or are about to happen. Uh, And then when I have a sort of a more solid idea of what needs to happen, I will quite often then go into Aeon and literally just use it for a period of like four days Mm -hmm. to plan out. I mean, a period of just maybe four days to the hour of like, okay, this is when this happens. This is when this person goes here. This is when you, they get this information and then I'll go back into my draft and make sure that all makes sense. And then Mm -hmm. I go back into my draft and shuffle around bits to make sure that that's true. (laughs) Yes. Yep. It's very, very handy for that. I had a, um, for working on uh, the second book uh, for the hidden palace, I at one point had characters um, coming across on the Lusitania. And so I have from, from England uh, to the United States, um, and so I had everything in my book, you know, that's, you know, it's sort of like Dr. Who, you're talking about a fixed point in time and you cannot change when, you know, the Lusitania's <laughs> last, last, um, full, full voyage to the U S before, before it was sunk. Um, so that, you know, that basically nails you down in one place. And then I had to have everything sort of fall to one side or the other. And it became so onerous and so, um, so much of a, a burden and, and, you know, it meant that some action had to be really compressed and other, you know, parts of, of the book were just characters like sort of sitting around tapping their toes, waiting for things to start. <laughs> and, and eventually I just said, I can't do this. And I, I unhooked it from the Lusitania and, and had them come across by some other means completely. And, and at that point it was like everything loosened up and suddenly there was breathing room and, and people could actually live their lives and, and not be sitting waiting for the boat to arrive. So that became much easier. But it, yeah, it, it's like when, when you're dealing with historical events, there are some things that really are just nailed in place and, and you have to figure out either how to work around them or work through them. But that is also a good example, I think, of the whole uh, people misinterpret the kill your darlings advice. Yes. And I, I think that's actually a really good example of it. Like you can't, as you say, you can't change when that ship arrived in america on its final voyage but you can just choose not to make it an important part of your story you always have that choice yeah and it took a long time for me to come around to that because i I, because it was a darling yeah it was a darling and i had done so much lusitania research and and it was going to be um 
tie him more thematically with with one of the characters who is um, very wealthy but has spent a lot of her uh, life um, sort of avoiding wealth and, and the trappings of wealth and now to be coming across on, on this incredible gilded ship um, it was in, in many ways just sort of hateful to her um, and so when I lost that I was I was a little I was a little sad about it but it it oh gosh everything else you get to a certain point where it's like it's been so much of a struggle it's like fine don't I, I don't care I don't care anymore I lose the Lusitania if it means I get to go forward and make make actual progress on this yeah anything to make the the work go easier which i mean yep. and that's the next thing we really have to talk about so you uh as you say Gollum and Ginny was published in sorry what was it 2012 2013 13 sorry right but that means that you'd finished it you know you've yep. finished it and submitted it to the publishers i would guess in around 2011 um uh 2012 actually oh, i was had it a relatively short process okay yeah, it was it was a very strange because uh, it, it sold um, when it was only half finished, and oh, wow. yeah, at that point it was, which I didn't realize at the time because I was brand new to this whole process, just how bizarre that was. Um, and for then, a debut, yeah, 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 and uh, then had to finish it, and it had taken me six years to get to the point. Uh, five or six years to get to a point where I, I, where it went to auction. And then at that point I had a year to finish it and, and I had the second half of the book to write. And so that was a heck of a year. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it sold in to, yeah, 2011 sold, finished it in 2012, published in 2013. Okay. And I have to, I, I always have to remember these dates around like when my, my, my daughter was born and what was happening and various other <laughs> yeah. things. Family and life events as well. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when did you start? I assume you started fairly soon afterwards then on the sequel. Yeah, it was, there was a lot of noodling around. Um, I, I did, I had a sort of lengthy, um, uh, public uh, publicity process for uh, the first book. What happened was, so it was published in like late spring. And then uh, that fall is there, there's a, a group called uh, the Jewish book council um, that connects uh, congregations and uh, Jewish uh, book groups um, with authors and will fly an author out or, um, you know, arrange for a, now nowadays a Zoom um, and will, uh, if you if you apply to be part of, of the Jewish Book Council's like stable of authors for a given year, um, then you can, uh, you can spend quite a bit of time um, doing sort of book group talks and publicity and, and so on. And so that was what I did for, you know, sort of, I think it was a good year um, after the book was published, I was, I was still sort of doing um, talks and publicity and, and, and so on. And in the back of that, and I was also, um, I had, my, my daughter was a year old at the time. So I was also, you know, still learning how to be a new mom. And, um, at that point, uh, I was starting to think about the next book. Obviously people were asking, so what are you going to do next? And I had a few ideas and, um, I, and it wasn't, but it wasn't until, uh, 2015, that they really that the ideas came together and that my um you know agent 
basically said, okay, you got to strike while the iron's hot. Um, And it was like the weekend of my 40th birthday, um, which is how I know it was 2015 um, (laughs) that I got that I I got a contract for the next book. Um, So that was the year you and I met as well. Was that so I'm trying to think now if that was before or after you'd signed for the second book. Oh, my goodness. Um, it might have been like had in there somewhere. <laughs> I had a stroller. The had a stroller, stroller. <laughs> would have been for the first one for my for my uh, for my second child. I, I've I found out while I was on book tour that I was pregnant again. I found out by fainting on stage, which I don't recommend doing. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a heck of an evening. Um, but then, so in the middle of of like still finishing up the tour and figuring out the next book, I also um, got pregnant and and had another kid. And there was a couple of years in there that I really don't remember very well. It all just sort of seems like a blur. Um, and then I started writing the second book uh, really in earnest around two thousand, yeah, about two thousand fifteen. And so that's. Basically, from then to now is is how long it's taken me. So actually, I mean, you know, you and I know one another, as I'm sure listeners have guessed by now. And, you know, I know that this has been a long and occasionally tortuous process for you to get <laughs> the second book out. But it sounds like actually it took you about as long as the first book did. It it did. It really did. And I thought it was going to be two years. I thought, it, you know, it, everyone always says... Every new book is like you're starting over from the beginning and you have to learn how to be a writer again. And there's like there's the 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 stuff that you hear that some part of you is going to you know that says not me. Yeah. <laughs> you always I'm, think oh no, I'll be different. <laughs> yes, I'll be different. I will I will blow the curve. And no, it really did um take me back to the days of lying in bed, staring at at the ceiling and going, okay, so did I only have one book in me? Um, Or, you know, should I, you know, Googling what happens if you have to break your contract and give back your advance as a writer? You know, it it just, it felt there was a certain amount of despair in there for a little while as I floundered around in the weeds and um, couldn't really... As much as I, you know, put an outline together and sample chapters and sold the the, the book out in the contract, um, uh, which was actually for two books, one of which you know still needs to be written. Um, but as it, for all that that I had done, I I got off track fairly quickly with this one, for reasons that I'm still not completely sure of. Um, but and then took a while to find what it was that. I was going to be talking about and what this book really did need to be about in the end and then how to go back and reshape it to make it be about that in the end and where I needed to take my characters as part of that. Yeah. So, I mean, let's let's be clear. Even if you had, quote unquote, only one book in you, Gollum and Genie <laughs> was a very, very good book that won awards and it sold very well. And, uh, you know, there, there would be no shame in that certainly but just purely from a, a reader's perspective i'm very happy that it wasn't and that there is a second book to look forward to because as i said before i did enjoy Gollum and Ginny a lot i didn't know that you had signed for two more books however yes, yes. 
So that is uh, the second. The second book on the contract is still to be decided, and I have a few um, ideas. I am very unsure as to whether it will be another Golem and Genie book or if it will be something else entirely. Um, I could I could go either way at this point, and I think part of that will will be uh, determined by sort of the, the how how the second book does and how readers respond to it and and whether you know there's a certain amount of you have to get away from it for a while you have to take a break for yeah. a while before you can sort of turn around and and look back at it and say is there more or was that it um and for the last book when i did that the answer was no there is more you know it might take me a few years to find out what exactly that is but i didn't feel like i was done with the characters or the world and you know having set um, my characters and, and sort of the greater world that I've built so far in the past, there's a lot that can be done. Um, you know, the, it's sort of, I keep coming back to Doctor Who, um, but it is sort of like <laughs> Doctor Who in, in that there are elements of, you know, genre along with the historical and there's any number of combinations that you can do with that and you can take it in, in different directions. And um, in fact, I think partly it was, the, the I, I was spoiled for choice with with writing the second book, and I could have done any number of things, and and that is why, um, I it took me so long to figure out what it was that was the thing worth doing. Yeah, why um, it occasionally spun out. Exactly, exactly. Oh my God, so many different things that I researched and I was going to put in there, and I didn't. Um, but that means that I now have a whole treasure trove um, of research that I could go to if I wanted to, um, and and make something out of that. So, um, if it's any consolation, I wrote a sixty-issue comic series for eight years, and at the end of it, I probably managed to get about half of what I intended to put yeah. into that series down there. And yeah. the rest of it just, I was like, I didn't have room. I didn't have room for it. It didn't fit. There's, you can, What what's hard is when you realize that any one of the things that you've chosen to put into this book could be a book on its own. That was, that was what I ran into with early drafts of, of this one was I realized I was about 40 to 50,000 words in and I hadn't introduced all of my main characters yet. And that wasn't, it wasn't not because like someone wasn't, you know, going to be introduced until like the middle or later in the book. It was that the book just wasn't getting off the ground because I had put so much into it that it was going to be like a thousand page tome and that was not going to work. So I had to go back and <laughs> my, I, I, my, my husband, um, said later that it was sort of like in the predator when 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 the predator pulls the spine out of the guy that's what you did to your book <laughs> like like there was all this connecting material um it, it was like the thing that was going to move the plot along that i realized was just overstuffing the book and was going to have to get set aside possibly for something else so i just ripped the whole thing out and then i had to figure out what it was that was going to connect everything back together again that is surely the only time that I will hear a reference to Predator <laughs> when discussing your books. I mean, really. Now, that would be a crossover. <laughs> I mean, not that they're especially genteel, but really, <laughs> not <Yes>. unexpected reference. <laughs> so were you... Um, I mean, you must, I assume, then start at the start and write linearly. You don't jump around. 
I try to. Well, okay. So I was going to write this book um, as the the second, uh, The Hidden Palace, as starting a number of years in the future um, from the first book. Like there would be a jump of a decade or so, and it would start almost like a cold open um, with some calamitous thing happening and then flashbacks and every other chapter was going to be a flashback to the years in between um, and then bringing you back to the present day for something else and then a flashback and then back to to present day, um, the present day of the book. Um, And that became very unwieldy, very quickly. The, the uh, flashback, the flashbacks were taking over the book. Um, there were flashbacks within the flashbacks. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so to, to really turn this into, you know, inception, basically. Um, so I had to stop, take everything apart. Um, and then as I tried to figure it out, like the best way to work it, eventually, any number of drafts later, really ended up starting the book bang as the first book ends. In fact, there is a certain amount of overlap where the first chapter, uh, not the first chapter, but maybe like the second chapter is told from, it's something that's happened in the at the end of the first book, but from the perspective of a different character. But um, were you writing from start to finish? Or were you yeah. trying to write all of those flashback chapters, oh, you know, in one no. go before doing the rest? No, I was writing from start to finish, I suppose. But uh, honestly... It got so scrambled up that things that um, I had written in a, a like a linear earlier draft of the book then then they got lifted out and just sort of plopped in and then I had to write on from there. So it was sort of like building a puzzle with pieces, some of which I had handed myself and some of which I had to fill in as I went. Um, but yeah, I do try to, as far as the book from start to finish is concerned i do try to write linearly there are sometimes usually as a an exercise for myself when i'm you know trying to figure out what to write to um where i will like noodle out a a later part of the book always you usually i I do this weird thing where if i'm taking notes or i'm uh writing what i want to happen later in the book it's in present tense it's not because all my mm-hmm. my books are all in past tense. It's all past tense, third person, very you know, semi omniscient narrator. Lots of you know, a certain amount of of distance. The the narrative voice has a certain amount of distance from the characters. Um, but when I'm uh, writing out like formulating plot, I always write in the the present tense. Like she does this, and then he does this, and then something, something, something. Um, so I will jump ahead and make notes for myself. But that's not really writing. No, that's no, that's not planning. really drafting. Yeah, because I, I do yeah. that as well. I switch from writing in the past <clears throat> to making notes in the present. Um, Isn't that funny? It's like the things is, that yeah. <laughs> the the brain tricks that we all do just to just just to tell ourselves we're not really writing now. We're just planning. Well, that's well, kind of writing, but it, it's just it's it funny. Is, but I think for me. And this may not be true for anybody else, but for for me, I think it's a way to kind of reassure my inner editor that this doesn't have to be good writing, that I am just making notes, that I'm just jotting things down, 
Nobody's ever going to see it. It's just nonsense. As long as it makes sense to me, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a way of getting this stuff down quickly. Otherwise, if I was writing it in past tense, you know how it is. You know, then I'd have you a start tendency to start, Right, exactly. To thinking, yep. what's the right word to use here? Yeah. Rather than just getting on with actually putting the note down. No, it has to, yeah, it has to be in a different format completely it's to turn off the editor. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of editors, I mean, how how understanding were your agent and publisher about how long it took you to write the second book? What were those conversations like? <laughs> I don't um, I don't mean that in a salacious way, but <laughs> No, no. No, I don't. No, absolutely because of course that you you want to know. Well, how did they let her do that? Um and the answer is I have incredibly forgiving and patient um editors and uh and my agent is uh, a very understanding person who is very much about getting the book right, getting the thing itself right before um, it's published. And so he's an extremely good reader. He um, is one of the best critics that my work has ever had. Um, and but he is also like the person standing between me and the machine. And so he has to every once in a while tap his watch and, you know, okay, so Helene, <laughs> how's it going? Um, so I, in the early years, it was easy or it, it was like, okay, no, this isn't going as fast as I want. Um, I'm dealing with small children as well. I am learning how to be a writer as well as a parent. Um, and yes, they're going to give me some time. And then, um, yeah, gosh, the problem is I have a hard time remembering how exactly the timeline goes. There was at one point where my book was due um, and I had a conversation with my editor, uh, my my very wonderful editor, Terry Carton at HarperCollins. Um, and I had the book like 80 or 90% done. And I she called me to, you know, so how's it going? So what am, what am I going to see when I, you know, I think it was doing about like three weeks. Um, and I had three weeks to write the rest of the book. And I'm like, Terry, I got this. This is what's going to happen. And I'm telling her all this stuff and all this stuff and all this stuff. She's uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they go here and then there's going to be this thing on a rooftop and uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. And I got to the end and she said, I'm going to give you another year. It's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, no, I'm listening to you and this is a lot that you're telling me and I think it's more than you think it is and I think you're going to need another year and we're just going to push this back on the schedule. And it really was me just, I I felt at first kind of crushed, like where it's like they... It was an it, it odd It feels reaction. like a lack of faith in you, almost. Exactly, like a lack of faith. Like, I try, I'm trying so hard to turn this in, and you're not going to let me turn it in. But she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. It needed the time. And in fact, it needed um, a much more thorough edit, like an almost back to the drawing board edit in some aspects of the book um, than I had realized at that point. Um, and because I had just gotten so far down in it that I hadn't seen some really fundamental problems with the book. Or if I had, I kind of had, but I had, I'd pushed them into that corner of my brain that said, just, just don't think about it yet. 
Yeah. Um, Always and, a good idea. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, there's a little alarm bell going off, Perfectly but healthy. you know, it's in the distance. It's probably for someone else, not me. Um, so at that point, yeah, it took another year from there. Um, and that really was at that point, they, when she gave me the extra year that like nailed it into the calendar. Um, and then of course the pandemic happened and I, uh, ended up writing the, what became, I'd say a good third of the book in the end, in the, in a tent in my backyard, um, because my kids were homeschooling, basically they were doing the distance learning thing. And my, my husband had taken over, uh, that at, at that point so that I could meet my deadline. Um, and so I was in the middle, in the middle of summer last year with sweat pouring down me and fans like on extension cords pointed into the tent and, and my, my laptop fan running at full speed. And I was, I was just banging out the rest of the book. Um, and then, yeah, managed to get it in and did a very extensive round of edits that, um, where all, all the cans that had gotten kicked down the road um, ended up in a, a heap at the end of it. And so I had to address all of them in the edits. And, and that was a very hairy process. But in the end, it it happened and it's it's coming out. It's going to be on June 8th. It's going to be a real book. And I can't tell you how many times I doubted that it was ever going to happen. Yeah, I, I know I can believe that. But I, I, along with many other people, I, for one, am very, very glad and grateful that it is and that i will soon be able to read it um so bearing in mind the conversation we've just had i think i can't wait to hear your answers to these questions i'm going to give you some <laughs> standard closing questions now. sorry i don't know i'm going to ask you what do you think you're pretty good at what am i pretty good at i am pretty good i think at world building and accounting for like creating a structure um, a system that has its own rules um, and then following those rules and taking the premise that creates to its conclusion. Um, because when you have something like, okay, I'm going to take a golem, a supernatural creature who is incredibly strong, doesn't age, isn't human, um, doesn't sleep, um, you know, any number of these things, of, of these, you know, internal rules, I'm going to devise those rules, first of all, and then I'm going to drop her in the middle of 1899 Manhattan. Um, there's, and I'm going to make it a very realistic 1899 Manhattan. It's not going to be sort of a fairy tale gloss. It's going to be, how are these people, you know, living from day to day? And how is she going to account for all of the things that she can do and can't do as part of that? That sets up a certain number of constraints. Um, and those constraints will produce knock-on effects. Um, and so, and those will have repercussions and it just sort of keeps going from there. Um, so I'm, what I got very good at, what I trained myself to do is to keep all of those in, in my mind at the same time. Um, part of Hava's character, um, is that part of, part of the fallout from having been, um, attached to a master for the first, basically like the first few minutes of her life. And then that person dies is, is sort of how she ends up um, in the United States without a master. Um, part of that is that instead of hearing his thoughts and his commands, she becomes sort of like a radio antenna where she can hear the thoughts and emotions of everyone around her. And it's like little fingers sort of plucking at her sleeve and asking her to do things for them. Um, 
And so if I've got that going and I've got a character who is in essence an empath and can read other people's emotions and thoughts, I have to take that into account every single time she's in a room with someone. Um, I have to figure out who is she in the room with? What is she going to be getting from them? What is, you know, are they going to be telling her things that that can be then become a plot point where she overhears something in someone's mind that's something she needs to know? Or if there's something that I, as the writer, am hiding from her in in uh, for purposes of the plot. I can't put her in a room with anyone who's going to know it. Um, so it becomes sort of a logic puzzle. Um, if I've got two characters who are like that, it becomes an even bigger logic puzzle. Um, <laughs> so, and that uh, is one of the reasons that I write so solely is because I do have to take all of the stuff into account. Um, but I got pretty good at doing that and at just sort of figuring out everything that I needed to, to keep in mind and take into account as I go forward. All right. Well, then conversely, what do you wish you were better at? Oh, I want to get better at predicting the arc of a narrative up front. I want to get better, better at seeing the whole of a story um, and not biting off more than I can chew. Um, really can be the beginning process is always very invigorating it's it's like you know oh i'm a kid in a candy shop you know give me all the research i'm just going to learn and learn and learn and then i'm going to create this perfect book um and it gets to the point where i you know i'm suddenly completely overwhelmed and just floundering you know out in the ocean i've lost sight of land um so i want to get better at writing i i either shorter stories or smaller stories or stories where the scope's a little more pulled in um, and at tending to a number of things at the same time. Um, I I think you do and I know a lot of writer friends who – it's like they're tending a garden uh, where you've got a number of different ideas. You've got different things that are growing in the back of your mind and you water some every once in a while and you feed others. And at some point one, you realize, ah, eh, this one really, I'm putting this back in compost. It's not, it's not good for much. Maybe I'll salvage it at some point later. Maybe that'll grow into, you know, something when I'm not realizing it. Um, and then every once in a while, something gets finished and, and you, it's like you harvest it, you finish the story, you send it off. It, and it's maybe this is going back to, you know, what we talked about earlier, where everyone thinks that the, uh, the, the way the other person writes is the way to write. Um, but it, it does seem like a call more and more sensible way to, to have a writing career. And it's something that I'd like to at least see if I can reach toward and even if I end up being a complete failure at writing like that, I know myself well enough now to know that there are lessons that I will learn in the process and that I can then incorporate um, into my sort of writing life overall. Um, also, one thing, <laughs> a much more concrete and like check-offable thing that I want to get better at is writing first person. Um, I'm terrible at writing in first person. I never, uh, even back when I was writing in, in grad school, I never wrote first person stories. I always switched them to third person at some point. Um, it, I just, I love having the... Uh, the versatility of third person that I can jump around, that I can zoom out or in as I need 
uh, as, as I feel I need to. Um, but it's a very, I think it would just be a good tool to have in my toolbox to, to learn how to nail myself to one perspective and, and go from there and write, you know, a, a different kind of book. So yeah, that's something I'd like to learn. So finally, what is the last book that you read where the writing really impressed you and why? The last book I read that really impressed me was um, a book that I finished, I want to say a couple weeks ago, uh, called The Absolute Book, um, which is not very well known in America yet, but I has uh, reached uh, the UK at this point. It's uh, The writer's name is Elizabeth Knox, and she is a, um, a writer out of New Zealand. And it's a very long book. I, I want to say it was like close to 600 pages. Um, and it's one of those books where you can um, sputter and go apoplectic trying to tell someone what it's about. Um, <laughs> and it, it starts in one place, ends up somewhere completely different. The scope is so much bigger than you think it is from the beginning. It starts off as as this woman who um, had something very traumatic happen to her when she was a child. Her um, Someone murdered her sister, who she was very close to, um, and then um, the the murderer was caught and put in jail. And uh, as and this isn't giving too much away because it happens in like the the, the earliest chapters of the book. Um, she has the opportunity at one point when she is older, when like say ten years later, when when the murderer is about to uh, be released from prison, uh, someone who she meets offers basically to kill this guy for her, and she allows him to. And her grandparents owned a private library that um, had all of these artifacts in it. And at one point, the library burned, and that got her very interested in li- the history of burning libraries in exa- Alexandria and so on. And so she uh, writes this book about the history of, of burning libraries. And all of and at the same time that this is happening, she's starting to realize that there is something very funny going on in her life that is not quite that doesn't feel like it should be real um and all of these threads come together um as this very strange what feels almost like a kate atkinson uh police procedural that half of it takes place in what is basically the land of fairy um oh wow and it becomes about the place of how how her life, these various uh the, the, the history of her family and what has happened in her family and these artifacts that her family ended up sort of being accidentally entrusted with um, are going to direct the future of humanity is what it comes to Um, and how that happens and how her sister's death ended up being woven into it. And it was, you can hear me sort of now, of course, sputtering because this is how everyone (laughs) who talks about this book ends up being like, and then there's fairies. Um, But it was, amazing and it was almost like this the 600 page long magic trick that she pulled off and the writing was deceptively simple but then you get to the end of a paragraph and you're like wait what did she just do what what was that who is this guy and as she's like revealing these small things like almost as an undercurrent where you blink and you miss who this guy really is oh wait a minute go back figure out um, it was, it, it really sort of spun my head around and it was just amazing. So that, uh, the absolute book by Elizabeth Knox, I recommend it to everyone. 
Fantastic. So, Helene, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me at HeleneWecker.com, uh, which is my brand new website. Finally got a facelift after way too long. I am also on Twitter. Um, I think... I can't remember. I can never remember if it's Wecker H or Helene Wecker, but there is only one of me. Um, so just, you know, do a search on my name. Um, it's, it's good having a, a slightly um, uh, unusual name, just unusual enough that people can find it. All right. And see, now, normally at this point, I ask uh, guests to recommend, like, say, what do you recommend that our listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you? But in your case, of course, it, the answer is obvious. It has to be the Gollum and the Ginny. Yep. Um, uh, and I will recommend it to everybody that they should read it because, like I said, I think it's an excellent book. It's beautifully written. Oh, thank you. Uh, I think I, I even emailed you, I think, after I read the first hundred pages to compliment you on how well it was written because not a lot had actually happened, but I was still absolutely thoroughly engrossed, <laughs> which I think is, oh. a, you know, a sort that of... Is a, that is a compliment. Thank it's you. A, it's a slightly <laughs> backwards compliment, but it was genuinely meant. <laughs> no, no, I absolutely understand. Um, and this is something that uh, a number of people have told me. It's like, not much happens except that you're teaching us everything that's going to happen. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, Helene, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.